in your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Uh, we were, Deanna and I were gone last week, a little bit of vacation, 82 and sunny every day. So, <laughs> weep. <laughs> Get your snow shovels out for tomorrow. It'll be hard to come back. One of the nuances of life is that when you dig a little bit under the surface, we work very hard at making life go smooth, don't we? And, and function with as few bumps as possible. And this result of it is that I think we look at God sometimes and say, God, would you cooperate with us? Would you make my journey simple and neat and clean? But I think that when we kind of expect God to do that, we, we kind of turn him into a genie. And we put him into a box and, God, you've got to function a certain way. We, we like a nice, safe God. There's a book that I read a number of years ago. It says, Your God is Too Safe. Interesting title. But here's how I think how we put God in a box. We, we take some verses and really we begin to take them out of context and we demand that God work in a certain way. So we hold on to these beliefs that maybe aren't quite so biblical all the time, just hoping that life will be a little bit more smooth. I think of parenting, for example, and in this proverb I've seen over and over again how parents use this verse, train up a child in the ways you shall go and they shall not depart from you. The proverb is a general truth, but there's exceptions, but we want to hold on to that passage and go, this is a promise of God. And the fact is that kids turn away from God. And it doesn't guarantee that we can force our faith on our children. As a matter of fact, the last couple of weeks in my reading, and even last week on vacation, coming across Eli, whose sons just walked away from God completely. And, and then I came to Samuel. I don't know if you realize it. Samuel, um, mom and dad loved the Lord. Samuel's committed to it, a profound prophet. But I don't know if you've ever really looked at his two sons. The sons of Samuel didn't walk after his dad. And matter of fact, they were judges in the land along with dad. And it was because of their sons, actually, that Israel was going, we want a king instead of these judges. They were actually making money off of their, the, the judge, being a judge. So I, I think we make some conclusions. And another example is this, Psalm 109. Hide God's word in our hearts that we might sin against you. I think at times we go, okay, I'm going to take my kids and I'm going to force them to memorize and do these things, and then this will keep them from that. We, we kind of take it as a form of a guarantee. And you go, no. That's just not necessarily the way life works and the way God allows this world to function. Uh, my son connected he, he was out at he went to Multnomah Bible College and and he played basketball out there and there was this fine young man that I remember sitting and talking to him and he reconnected with him here a couple of weeks ago and and this man has grown up and and already had to experience a divorce and he's having to move around the country because of his wherever his kids move and, and the consequences of that sin and yet he was in the scriptures he was committed to go into ministry and yet we see what happened so we, we use and we take these passages and we force it, but even on that Psalm 109, you know what? David's heart was already bent toward God. 
when he wrote that. But if one is not bent toward God, if one doesn't care, we recognize life isn't then quite so simple. So we, things get blocked and life doesn't work quite the way we want it to work because we want things simple and neat and predictable. And God doesn't work always through simple formulas that we create. For, and, and I think here's where I think there's a reality. We want these formulas to work especially for our families, don't we? Isn't that true? But the scriptures speak of difficulties, of a world that is fallen and the consequences of sin. Man, my reading of the New Testament, even this last week, last couple of weeks, is that people don't learn from their mistakes. That was kind of one of the conclusions I came away with. And you just look at the Israel as an example. So we have to stop and we have to admit that there is a battle that goes on in our hearts, the hearts of people, and there's this spiritual battle, and you think of it with our kids and siblings and as we even as older, but we struggle with where are we going to find meaning in life and where are we going to give our love? Are we going to give it to God or are we going to hoard on to it and love ourselves? So we see how we want life to work so smoothly. And we forget these battles. And, and sometimes I think what we actually do when we look around at people and our family and we, we kind of plug our ears and close our eyes and go, la, 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 la. I don't want to really look at the reality of this world. Well, let me connect that, that kind of attitude to today to the gospel now, just remember, two weeks ago, we looked how the Holy Spirit has to work and has to actually rebirth people in order for salvation to occur. And by the way, there's no simple formula in that as well. We just got to know that the Holy Spirit has to work. But we also believe this as a church. We are called to proclaim the gospel, to give Light, to be life to people, to give light, to be a, a shining on a hill where people see who God is. But we must remember a hard reality as well. And here's kind of a bad theology as we even head into the gospel. I think we, we go, it kind of goes like this. We believe that everybody out there, even our kids, all start at the same place spiritually. There's just some kind, there's this neutralness of people. And I want to tell you this morning, if you believe that, that just isn't biblical. And we'll see that actually in the text this morning. Now, now today, we need to look at the different types of people that are out in this world and as to their how the heart, the condition of their heart is a reality as we share the gospel to people. Mark chapter 4. Uh, th this passage connects us to the Great Commission even. Look how it reads. Mark chapter 4, verse 1. A parable. Again he began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him so that he got into a boat. And just gets you a picture of this crowds just coming to him. And it gets so much pressing against him that he decided he gets in the boat and he begins to teach. And he sat out on the sea, and the whole crowd is beside the sea on the land. 
And he was teaching them many things in parables. And his teaching, he said to them, listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and he sowed some seed that fell on the path, and the birds came and devoured it. Another seed fell on the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. Another seed fell in the good soil and produced the grain, growing up and increasing and yielding thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, so now understand that phrase, that transition there. Others, other gospels would share it more deeply, but he pulled away from the crowd and he pulls his disciples to himself. And he asked them about the parables. And he said to them, in verse 11, To you have been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they turn and be forgiven. Now, i got to stop right there. Because there is... We just read a very hard truth in these verses that we're not comfortable with at times. See, he tells his disciples that he had to keep the spiritual eyes of certain people darkened so they wouldn't believe and be forgiven. And you go, wait a second here. See, if we're intellectually honest, we want God to treat everybody the same. Don't we? We want God to play fair by our rules. But folks, God had a larger agenda here. I understand that in his plan that God had started that he was not going to be blocked. That Jesus, the plan of the mission of Jesus was, was not going to, people weren't going to respond and then somehow he didn't fulfill his vision, his mission. See, it reminds us, I think, that God ultimately is in control of this world and this universe. Now, matter of fact, one thing it doesn't catch here in the Mark text that Matthew actually points out is that that last verse in verse 12 actually is the prophecy of Isaiah. And that needed to be fulfilled in this mission. Well, let's continue verse 13. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? And the sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And when they have no root in themselves but endure for a while, then when tribulation or persecution arise on the account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. And there are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and, and the deceitfulness of riches and of desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. Now, now understand here that this is a very important parable because Jesus here is training his disciples and he's saying, guys, you got to understand this one or all the other parables won't make sense. 
So this parable is very important, and it's important for us today. It's written three different Gospels as well, the other three Gospels. But it's common. Now, this we tend to use this language as a parable of the sower. And I would say, nah, I don't really like that title. I think this would be more fitting. It's the parable of the soils. It's the hearts of people as they hear the gospel, as they hear the word of God. But it teaches us and it prepares us to understand when we're giving seed, when we're presenting the word, when we're, when we're giving out the gospel, it helps us understand people. But there's, So there's really those two realities. It, it gives us that of the understanding of people, but I think there's a place in every setting to stop and go, how does this apply to my heart? So I think there's, we need to do that. And I think we need to always ponder that through the word. Well, look at the first soil in verse 4 and verse 15. And he sowed some seed along the path, and the birds came and devoured it. And then those, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown, and they hear, and Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. Now, if you're taking notes, when you think of this kind of soil in the hearts of people, I said it this way, the first one, I think this is an indifferent heart. People just don't care with this kind of soil. Now, now some background here. The fields in Israel didn't have markers. I grew up on a farm, and, and we had trees and fences that would, that would kind of outline our property. But in Israel, it really wasn't like that. And oftentimes, the markers of your property were paths, little roads. And, and they often would be only about uh, two, three feet wide. But people going from city to city would walk and use these small paths in terms of going in their travels. They were being accessible to lots of different people. Not like, unlike, it's really unlike our farms today. But this would have been the kind of path, for example, in chapter 2, let me just read it, I don't have it on the screen. It says, one Sabbath he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. We think that he's walking through the grain. Probably not. He's on one of these very narrow paths, Narrow enough where if you're walking, you can just kind of reach out and grab the wheat or whatever crop they were doing and, and pluck it. So that's the picture here. But understand, sowing seed on these paths, these paths were not ever cultivated. They, and they were just they were stomped on, people walking. And if it wasn't raining, you understand these paths would have been hard like concrete. So Jesus is saying here that the seed is getting from the field is going on to that hard path and nothing can start growing. And, and you notice he mentions that the, either the birds take it away or Satan comes and plucks it away. Now, do I think it's a, a demon-possessed thing? No. I, I think people have bought into what the lies of Satan that I can be like God, it doesn't matter, I'm in control of my own destiny. And the word just disappears. They hear the gospel. It's gone. It can't take root at all. Do we catch that? And I think here's where the hard part is. Because if we stop, stop and ponder, 
we realize that there can be children and family members and spouses who have hard hearts like this. That's the soil of their heart. And even in a church, any church like this, People can hear the word, they can read it, and they leave and they walk out the door and it's meaningless. And they just don't care. And life snatches it away. And you go, that's a hard truth. That people just don't care about God and the things of God. Now, the starting point with this kind of soil within people's hearts, I believe, is prayer. And oftentimes, we're not going to be the jackhammer to do that soil. That needs to be the Holy Spirit. Let me go to a second soil, though. Verse 5. Another seed fell on rocky ground, and when he did not have much soil, then immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. And, and these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while... Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, here's how I described it for your notes, the second soil. It's a temporary heart. You know, they hear it, there's this emotional response that, oh, Jesus, we're going to follow you. But when you dig a little bit below the surface, what's going on here? Well, the parable that he's talking about, understand the farming analogy here, is that I read it and I go to this fields that are rocky. And I, again, I grew up on a farm and, and every spring and even sometimes in the fall that we would, uh, my mom or my dad would drive a tractor with a wagon behind and, and we were picking up, the six of us would pick up rocks and throw it in the wagon. That's where it kind of immediately go. But you notice some of the depth of that. It, it talks about the soil not being very deep. And, and here's the issue in this, is that in this country, in this the, the, the landscape, is that limestone bedrock in many places are below the surface. So the soil ends up being very shallow. That's the picture, the stony ground, the rocky ground. They're talking about the rocks that are below the surface not the ones that you see. And so when the seed goes into the ground, if there's a little moisture there, a little sunshine, yeah, the seed it starts to grow. But all of a sudden, when rain doesn't come, when it gets dry, you understand the roots can't go down into where there's moisture. It can't survive any kind of tribulation persecution there's no root and what happens it withers away see and recognize for us there are people in this world where all they receive it with great joy but there's no life there's no nurture and it's temporary it's short-lived their faith doesn't last over the long haul and we have to understand that there's people like this in every setting, in our culture. Let me go to the third one, though. 
From verse 7, 18 and 19. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And the others are the ones sown among the thorns. In verse 18, they are those who hear the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. So the third soil, I stated it this way. This is a hidden hard heart. It's a deceptiveness to it. Now, there's no bedrock issue here. There's no nutrition issue other than the fact that there's things growing under the surface. The weeds have roots that are down there that are robbing this person from spiritual nutrition. But they're unwilling, in one sense, the soil is set up in such a way that the weeds force it to never produce fruit or grain. It looks good from the outside, but it's a weedy garden. Look at verse 19. But the cares, and here's what robs it from ever producing. Cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, money, and the desires for things, possessions, Homes and stuff. See, we live in a fallen world. And I think of the curse on Adam with the weeds. But we have to, how does a heart change? You've got to get rid of the weeds. Because without that, even think of gardening. Some of you probably garden. We used to. It's all sand where we're at. Okay, but there's this place where if you allow the weeds to grow up, what happens? It just doesn't produce. Sometimes they get high enough where they're actually blocking the sun on those plants. See, that's the third, a hidden heart, but it, there's, no, there's no crop. Now, now, understand that all three of these really is a hard heart. Look at the fourth one in verse 8. And other seeds fell into good ground and produced grain and growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And here's how to describe it, the fourth kind of soil, a life-producing soil, heart. See, here's a soil within the hearts where it involves spiritual growth and reproduction. And the gospel drops in and the Holy Spirit works. A person responds and they believe and they turn and they go, God, tell me what to do. What, what do I need to know you? Let me pursue you. And it's saying, God, change me. See, the good soil is deep and it's soft and it's rich and it's nutritious. And the roots go down and when hardship comes, when there's no rain and sunshine, all of a sudden it still can survive. It still can produce an abundant crop. See, Jesus was training these guys as he pulled them away. He's going, guys, there is going to be people. Remember this. In all three of those categories, or four categories, and you've got to understand this as you go and you build my church. It's a reality of our world. Bring the message to the world, but guess what, guys? There's going to be different soils as the gospel goes forward. Don't assume. You know, even here, I think as elders and pastors, we assume that 
even in a church like this. There's different kinds of soils that exist in every church. See, it gives us a picture to understand, though, the age that we live in. And as we look to share the gospel, to make disciples, we recognize this is a hard reality. Is that some people's hearts out there are just hard and they don't care. But let me give you some application from this passage. Uh, number one, I said it this way, the soil of the hearts impacts the acceptance and the embracement of the gospel, not how clever we can be. See, there's that reality that exists that we can try to be clever to win people to Christ by being culturally relevant, being savvy enough, just saying the exact right words, that we can somehow overcome a path or a hard heart like a heart, like a heart of stone? And, and the answer is, we can't do that. Matter of fact, a history lesson. I don't know if some of you know the name Charles Finney. He was a revivalist and preacher in the 1820s and 1830s. And he would go, on, go around, and it's kind of the, the beginning of, the, of, a, of a new era in the way that people would present the gospel. And supposedly about half a million people were converted in his campaigns. But Finney was a master of creating just the right emotional atmosphere in those meetings. And people would respond in droves. And yet, when you begin to read history, and even the history that's written back then, they saw at times the minimal fruit that it actually produced. Matter of fact, his revival and his campaigns were all in the Northeast, in New York, in that area. And, and the result, you, you fast forward a few hundred years and you go, it's one of the most ungodly places there are, this Northeast. Least amount of church people anywhere in the country. And, and, and Finney would write music to manipulate people. He would emphasize on words that would create an emotional response. And people would joyfully go, I'm going to follow Jesus. And by the way, i got to mention this. He was really the first one to incorporate, to a large extent, an altar call. I don't know if you knew that. Let me move to a second application. Number two, acting religious is not the definitive sign of spiritual grain or fruit or multiplication. See, he's telling these parables to a deeply religious group of people. As he sat in that boat, you understand the group of people were not the people who didn't care. They were religious people. Do we recognize that? And he's saying disciples out in that crowd are going to be people that are going to respond to it. There's people going to respond for a little while to it. And there's going to be people that are going to respond and they're going to get involved in life and they're just going to walk away. And you see that as you look at the, at the followers of Jesus as he, before he went to the cross. People started walking away from him. And yet somewhere in the line, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. But acting religious isn't the issue. 
See, the moment that we can respond, people can respond to the gospel, respond to the words of Christ. And all of a sudden, deep down, they go, when it gets going, gets tough, they go, ah, I think I'll go elsewhere. See, but what's the real issue here? And I think it's this, when you think of those three other soils, none of them are connected really to Jesus. They're not connected to the life that he can give. Matter of fact, look at John chapter 15. Another agricultural example of Jesus with with fruit and and grapes. It says this in verse 4, Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, and unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he, he it is that bears much fruit. You catch, if we're not connected to Christ, nothing takes place. Apart from me, you can do nothing. See, people believe that they can act religious apart from being connected to Christ. And guess what? When effort doesn't produce what they think, they either fade away like the rocky soil or the things in life get pull him away from walking with Christ. But let, let me give you a third application as well this morning. Number three, we are to sow seed, the gospel, no matter what kind of soil. You notice there, Jesus is saying, you don't, it doesn't determine, you just go out and sow, guys. When I release you, and he, this was later on, is go and make disciples after he came out of the grave and as he prepares them, guys, you're going to go plant a church. And you just sow the seed. And, and guess what? There's going to be all kinds of resistance and some will accept, some will don't. And don't be surprised by this. Just sow it. Sow the seed. Now, now there's, there's a part of us where I go, we, we go look at that rocky, or the path, the hard path, and we go, okay, can, can God ever work in them? And, and here's where I go, yes, we're still called to sow, to love, to enter into their world. We don't reject them relationally because they might have a hard heart. We actually might need to pursue them more. Now, again, we'll... God necessarily use us? Not necessarily. But he can choose to work how he wants to work, and we've got to let him at times. Uh, John 3, a couple weeks ago, it says this, is that the Spirit can blow on any direction it wants to blow. It makes no difference. When he chooses to work, he can work, and he can work on somebody that has a heart like concrete, or if soil, there's no depth to it. Or if weeds are scattered, God can work in all three of those settings. So we just keep sowing and giving out the gospel. Number four, last application here. And it really is doesn't explicitly say it, but I really think it's here. The harvest assumes receding. Once the harvest occurs, you understand when a corn grows up, all of a sudden you have the potential for more seed to be sown. For wheat, those stocks grow up and all of a sudden there's the little seeds, the potential for more wheat. 
I grew up south of St. Cloud. Kokato was corn country. We had the Kokato Corn Carnival. Okay, but it was a hotbed for seed corn companies all over the place, little companies all around, but they would detassel and do their stuff. And the result was their growth, the grain and the, and the corn that was growing up, it was to start a new plant. See, that's the call in our lives. Are we producing fruit that will reproduce more fruit? More grain. Are seeds coming in our lives? Are they bearing fruition where we're seeding other people? Let me throw a couple questions on the screen just more for more application. Is the soil within our spiritual hearts first producing a crop? See, that's a hard one. We have to stop and ask, what if? What if we're the soil, a different kind of soil than rich, fertile soil? But maybe the second part to that question is, are we involved in seeding in the hearts of other people and others? Are we investing the word? Are we investing the gospel? That fourth B on the wall, bringing, bringing others to Christ, bringing the gospel to people, bringing others to maturity. See, the call in the life, if God is producing fruit in you, is for us to turn around and investing that in somebody else. Are we doing that? See, it's relational multiplication. That's what he desires. If, if you're in the rich soil where God is working and he's producing fruit, you can't just stop there. And he wants to give you 30-fold, 60-fold, 100 fruit, but it just doesn't stop. It's then to reinvest in somebody else's life. Are we doing that? Now, now let me just end with maybe a hard question. What if we believe that maybe to hit home that our children or a sibling or a spouse falls in one of these categories? Hardness like a path, rocky soil, no depth, lots of weeds. What do we do? And I think this is where we have to go. There's really only one option for us. In the midst of sowing, we get on our knees and we say, God, you're the one that has to change the type of soil. We have to depend on the Holy Spirit. If it's hard ground, you know what? The Holy Spirit has to cultivate it. If it's rocky ground, the Holy Spirit has to take away the limestone and make it fertile. And if it's weeds, the Holy Spirit has to get through all the junk and till that soil up so that people are ready. But the Holy Spirit has to be the one that's working at that point. And the challenge for me is, do we actually stop and pray that the Holy Spirit would change the soil in people's lives? A number of years ago, a number of times at Lakewood where I'd be meeting with marriage counseling and even family stuff. And, and one of the things I keep pushing people for is do you pray for your spouse? Do you pray for their salvation that the soil would be fertile 
And the Holy Spirit would take root. And I, I can't tell you how many times where I'd come back a couple weeks later and I said, were you praying for your spouse? And they look at their, they bow their head and they go, no. And you go, no. We, the only thing that's going to work at times is the Spirit of God working. And we have to trust that He's in control. And we can't play the game of, go, oh, God, you have to work. God's choice. But do we stop and pray for the soil of our kids if they don't know Him? Siblings, spouses, relatives, good friends. See, that's where it starts. It's getting on our knees and saying, God, you got to be the one to work. Because ultimately, if you don't change the soil, they're going to reject you. We need to pray. Think of people at your work who you need to begin to pray for. Family members who you need to begin to pray for. That there's the soil would change in their hearts and they would be open to the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and pray.